0: Well, good morning. And if we don't know each other, my name is Nate. I forgot to mark where I'm supposed to be in the Bible, so amateur mistake. Um, a number of years ago, I was the high school pastor here. And one of the things that we have in our high school ministry is called D groups. And D groups are basically just small groups for high school students. And one of our D group leaders would start off every year with the same icebreaker question. And I think it's an excellent question. He would say to the, to the group, um, if your life was like a hike, if your relationship with God was like a hike, if your faith was like a hike, where are you on the hike right now? And the reason that I like that question is because it gives students a chance to be creative and you get all kinds of crazy answers and um, and that's fun, but you also, you learn a lot about somebody and how they answer that question. And that's the question that I, I want to ask you this morning. If your life is like a hike, if your faith is like a hike, where are you on the hike today? Are you at the top of the mountain? You've been on the hike and you've reached the destination that you've been looking for. And there's a beautiful view and you're overlooking this amazing scene. Or maybe the path that you are on was leading to the beach, and you've arrived, and you've got your feet in the sand, in the water now, and life is good. You've gotten where you wanted to be. Your health is good. The family's good. Business is good. You're at the the good spot of the hike. Or are you trudging through the mud in the fog. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel nostalgic. And as you're on this path, what's in front of you seems very foggy, maybe even a little scary. But what seems, what's what's behind you just is so great. But on the hike, you've got to keep moving forward and... Now you just feel alone and sad. Or are you distracted and off the path of the hike? You had an idea of what you wanted your life to be like relationally or professionally or financially or morally, but you've gotten off the path. There was something enticing and you followed it. And it's not that you've forgotten about the path. You can still maybe see the path, but you're, off course in the woods somewhere doing something else right now. Or maybe you're on the path, but you see some people off the path and there's something off the path that's enticing to you. And right now you're, you're standing still on the path, but, but you're thinking about venturing off the path. Maybe you wandered here this morning and that's where you are. Maybe you were making good progress on the path, but then a tree fell and it's blocking the path. Maybe the tree fell in the form of just something simple that you couldn't control, like you need new tires. And that sounds pretty simple, but it's actually fairly complicated because financially that's stressful. And it was something that you couldn't control that seems like now it's in the way of the path and you're not sure how to get around it. Maybe it's a much bigger tree that's fallen in your path. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one or a disappointment about something that happened to you or did not happen for you. Maybe it's a health crisis and because of this tree that's fallen, I don't know how we're going to move forward now. We're stuck. Maybe you feel lost in the woods. There was a time where you were on the path and you knew what you believed and you knew what you wanted your life to be, but you've been off the path for so long, now you just feel lost and confused. I don't know which direction I'm headed anymore. I don't know what I believe anymore. Maybe you're just tired and sore. And you've been walking on the path for so long, and the bag, the backpack that you're carrying is so weighed down with stuff that you're just tired and you need a break. And maybe that's because of everyday life kind of stuff like laundry and you've got to clean the house and you've got mouths to feed. Maybe you have small kids and it feels like you have to do everything for them and you're constantly changing them and feeding them and even just simple things like, we're gonna go get in the car is like a big thing and it takes 30 minutes just to accomplish that and you are just tired and sore. Or maybe... You are about to be an empty nester. And that is something that you knew was in the bag, but you're just now starting to feel the weight of it. And on one hand, there's some excitement with that. And on the other hand, you're sad. Maybe work and what you've had to pack in your bag because of work is weighing you down. You're opening and responding to emails at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock p.m. And that's on good nights. And it feels like there's just not a break in sight. You're responsible for too much. How could you pull back? Maybe you're on the hike and there's a rock that's in your shoe. And it's just something small and uncomfortable that you've been carrying with you for a while, but you're not sure how to get rid of it. Maybe it's guilt or embarrassment over something that you've done. Maybe it's a disappointment Or a loss that you've not recovered from. Maybe it's a doubt or a question that's just bothering you. Maybe it's something that someone said to you, a voice in your head that you just can't turn down. Where are you on the hike this morning? The reality is we all know what it's like to be at various stages of the hike, don't we? In all of our lives, we experience the ups and downs of the hike. There are times where we make it to the top. There are times where we make it to the beach. There are times where the tree has fallen. There are times where we're tired and sore. We all know what it's like to be in the ups and downs of the hike. And that is one of the reasons that God has given us the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has a song that God has written for us to sing in every season. In the fourth century, there was a pastor and a theologian named Athanasius. And he found out that one of his close friends was enduring some intense suffering. And so he wrote a letter to his friend to encourage him. And the point of the letter for his friend who was suffering was pretty simple. It was an explanation of how to read and study the Psalms. You can still find this letter on Google if you just Google Athanasius letter about Psalms. You can read it for yourself. But in the letter, he writes this. In the Psalms, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in the Psalms all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Moreover, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. The book of Psalms has a song for you that God has written for every season. And this summer, one of our goals as we look at this book is to learn how to pray and how to relate to God throughout all the various ups and downs of the hike that we're on. And so a few important things to know about the Psalms as we begin. Three quick things. First, the Psalms are poetry. Psalms are poetry. And so they use poetic language like hyperbole, and they have a rhythm to them. And they use lots of pictures and metaphors. And growing up, I hated poetry. When I was in English class and we would have to look at poetry, I would always just think like, why can't you just Say what you're trying to say. Like, just get to it. Um, we don't need to. I don't need to think about. so Just tell me what the point is. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate the power of poetry because it does communicate in a unique way. So the Psalms are poetry. Number two, the Psalms are songs. There's a difference between just a poem and a song. Being a poet is different than being a songwriter. And the Psalms are songs. They have a way of speaking to our soul in a way that only music can do. And these Psalms were the hymn book of the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, when they would gather for worship, these are the songs that they would sing. And these are also the songs that Jesus sang. When Jesus was on the earth, he would have sung lots of these. We have at least two examples of that. One is at the Lord's Supper. It says after he does all this stuff, you know, this is the bread and this is the cup and it's about me. It says they they sung a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. The hymn that they would have sung was from the book of Psalms. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he prays from Psalm 22. And maybe he even hummed it. These are the songs of Jesus. These are songs. It's the second thing. So they're poetry, they're songs. Number three, they're scripture. That is, these are God's word for us. And because of that, it means that 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we quote all the time, applies to this book. 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this. This is Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he says, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred, scripture, sacred scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, which would include the book of Psalms. You've known these scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is all of the Old Testament, including the Psalms, when we read them, somehow it should give us some information that can make us wise so that we can trust in Jesus. And all scripture, including the Psalms, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Psalms are not just cute poetry for your life where you learn about yourself and you get some language to deal with yourself. The Psalms are that, but they are more. The Psalms are where we come to learn about God, and who he is and what he requires of us and how we can follow him. And the Psalms are unique scripture because they're inspired by God. That is, they're from God. They're written from God for us in order that we might give them back to him. God has given us the Psalms so that we can give them back to him. And so they can be a tremendous help in our lives of prayer and worship. And because they're able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, ultimately the full weight of the Psalms is not really understood until you read it from the mouth of Jesus. And that's one helpful tool that you might use as you join us on the reading guide and pray through the Psalms. Try imagining the psalm being read from the perspective of Jesus, the true Israelite, the true human. That's a brief introduction to three things you need to know about the psalms as we jump in. Here's the overview of the book. The the psalms, the book of psalms is divided into five books that's on the screen for you if you're interested in this sort of thing. The way that we're gonna do this series is we're gonna look at the first from each of the five books. And then after we run out of books, we're gonna go back and look at the second. And then it's 11 weeks, so we'll have one extra, all right? So that's how uh, we're gonna follow. Um, that's our plan. Um, maybe if the Lord is willing, and I'm here for a long time as the pastor, Maybe in like 13 years, we'll finish the Psalms um, and we'll just look at them each summer and we'll complete all of them eventually. But that's what we're doing this summer. So Psalm 1 is where we'll begin today. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, Psalm 1 is where we'll be. The Psalms definitely understand the human condition. And so it's interesting that the Psalms actually begin where we begin. And that is, with how to be happy. Psalm 1 says, how happy is the one who, or your translation might say, blessed is the man. The word blessed or happy means fulfillment and satisfaction. It means enjoyment and pleasure. It's having a life that you can be proud of and at peace with. The Psalms begin with a description of someone who's happy. And isn't that where we begin our lives? We wanna be happy. In fact, it's Father's Day. This is one of the you know, pieces of advice or like one of those little things that a parent says to their kid. I just want you to be happy. Whatever college you decide to go to, whatever career path you choose, whoever you decide to marry, I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. And as Christians, I think at least growing up, I thought that happiness was bad. uh, Because people would say things like, God wants you to be holy, not happy. And so if I was ever having fun, I was like, oh gosh, am I doing it wrong? Is, am I in trouble? Is it okay? Uh, should I go pray or something? Um, or like people growing up were like, we don't care about happiness. We want joy. You know, joy is, and then they've got this massive, important definition and happiness is terrible. And you don't ever need to think about happiness. Um, and I think maybe the distinction can be helpful, but, but the message of the Bible is not that God is anti-happiness. God's critique of us is not that we care too much about our happiness. God's critique of us is that we don't care enough. And so we are willing to satisfy ourselves with things that will not actually make us happy we're willing to settle for things that will not produce eternal happiness. God's vision is eternal joy for his people. And so Psalms begin where we begin, with how to be happy. Is happiness the motivation underneath your decisions? This famous guy named Blaise Pascal, you may have heard of him, he's got a relatively famous triangle, um, Pascal's triangle. Uh, He was also a Christian. He converted to Christianity and he was a philosopher. And when I was in college, um, my roommate used to read um, uh, excerpts from Pascal um, before bed to us, kind of as a joke. Um, But there's actually a lot of good stuff in there. And here's something that Blaise Pascal said. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those Who hang themselves. He says, happiness is the driving factor underneath every decision of every person. Underneath all of our decisions is the question: what will make me happy? If you're not convinced by Pascal and you want an American, a founding father that you can trust. Here's what Benjamin Franklin said. The desire of happiness is so natural to us that all the world are in pursuit of it. All have this one end in view, though they take such different methods to attain it and are so much divided in their notions of it. He says the same thing as Pascal. Translation. Everybody wants to be happy. And this is the motivation underneath all of our decisions. And this is where the Psalms begin. How happy is the one who? How would you fill in that blank? We could look at your life and know your answer to that question. How happy is the one who? How would you answer that? How happy is the one who finds their soulmate? How happy is the one who finds themselves? How happy is the one who has wealth and financial security? How happy is the one who is knowledgeable and well-educated? How happy is the one who builds a successful career, who has a job that's enjoyable? How happy is the one who is close to family? How happy is the one who becomes famous? or goes viral? How happy is the one who's unburdened by the stresses of life? How happy is the one who has margin to travel and explore? How happy is the one who, how do you answer that question? This is where the Psalms begin. The psalmist says, you need to pay attention to how you answer this question. Your future and your life eternally hang on how you answer this question. The psalmist is going to say that there is a wide path and a narrow path. There is a wide path that you need to avoid. And there is a narrow path that you need to take. And the one who is happy knows that. Look at what he says. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. The psalmist mentions three different people here. He says the wicked, sinners, and the mockers. The wicked and sinners just refer to people who avoid God and God's authority. They avoid God and God's authority. The mockers are those who have avoided God and his authority for so long that now they look at those who listen to God and they mock. They are the, I wrote this down somewhere, I want to make sure I say this, um Here we go. Yes, sorry. Lost my train of thought in the the notes. The mockers are the know-it-alls who make fun of God and people who take him seriously. They are the cynical, enlightened elitists who are so far beyond the primitive religious people. That's who the mockers are. The psalmist says, the happy person does not take that wide path. And notice the progression. The progression is first walking. It's the idea of just you're starting to get your feet wet. You're just, you're just trying this out. We're just gonna see how this feels. We're not committing to anything. We're just gonna try this path out. But then eventually it leads to standing on the path. You know what? It kind of feels good over here. We're gonna stand. And then it ends with just plop yourself down and have a seat. Just make yourself at home on this path of avoiding God and his authority. The psalmist says, how happy is the one who does not do that? How happy is the one who leaves that path? And here's the reality is all of us, are enticed by that path, the path where we avoid God and his authority. Isn't that true? God says, tell the truth. We say, yeah, but all the time, surely there are some times where, where telling the truth would actually make my life worse, right? What's actually going to make me happy is... Just, look, I'm just going to walk on this path for a minute. I'm not not a liar. I'm not committing to being a liar. Uh, Certainly, we should tell the truth sometimes. But certainly, there are times where, I mean, right? That's the wide path. God says, you should be generous with your possessions. We say, yeah, generosity, that's a good thing. Philanthropy, we need more of that in the world. But... Look, I've got all this extra stuff. What are we going to do with it? I know. Let's tear down the barns we've got and build bigger ones. And then we'll be able to say to ourselves rest, take it easy, enjoy your life. And then, once we're, we know we're good, sure, help others. It's great. It's the wide path. God says, he created humans, male and female. And just a few years ago, that would have not even been a controversial statement. And now there are some of you who feel like I'm making a, some kind of statement here. Like I'm going there. Don't go there. Whoa, 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 What are you doing? I'm literally just saying a simple verse from Genesis 1. God created them male and female. It's the wide path. God says, love your enemies. We say, yeah, okay. But what it means to love my enemy is to prove them wrong online and embarrass them, right? (laughs) Because the most loving thing I could do is help them see the stupidity that they are operating with. And I need to help them see that they're stupid. And unless they know they're stupid then they're not gonna be able to get over here on this good path. And so let me walk down this wide path in the pathway of the sinners in order to get them on the right path. This path is wide and all of us start on it. The psalmist says, if you wanna be happy, you got to turn around and get off that path and get on the narrow path. And here's what the narrow path is, verse two. Instead, the happy person, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. The happy person delights in to delight in something means to see it as being beautiful, to see it as being true, to see it as being compelling and life-giving. When he says instruction, it refers to all of God's revealed counsel, all of scripture, his laws, the stories that he's inspired in the scriptures, even the poetry. All of scripture is what the happy person delights in, and he meditates on it day and night. And to meditate, When we hear that word, many times we think of kind of like a a mystical thing, like you're, you know, trying to create some kind of Zen moment and empty your mind of things. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind, it's filling your mind. It's fixing your mind on something. God's word. The psalmist says, the person who is happy does not go down this wide path, but instead delights himself in God's word. What does it mean for you to delight yourself, to meditate on God's word? Um, This week, um, Courtney and I had steak for dinner one night. Um, and uh, we have a daughter who's about six months old, and she can't eat steak, but we love her, and so we wanted to expose her to the flavor of steak. Um, and so, and maybe this, maybe you're judging me, and this is like a terrible parent, okay? So take it easy, all right? Um, but we have this little device that is like this kind of super tight mesh container thing that you can put stuff in and lock down, all right? And so we put a piece of steak in that, and then it has a handle on it, and she can hold it and suck on it, okay? And she loved it, all right? And so we have a lot of, you know, she's going to be normal. Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. If you don't like steak, you're normal too. Um, But she just sucked on this thing, and um, she just was fixated on it, and when we took it out of the, of the little, you know, pouch thing, um, it was just like a completely dry piece of meat. It was just literally had just had all of the juice sucked out of it, and that is what meditation is. Meditation is chewing on something, sucking on something so much that I'm going to get all of the juice out of it. And so that's what it means to meditate. Meditation on scripture just means, okay, I I read about Abraham in Genesis 12 this morning. And while I'm framing windows or while I'm delivering things or while I'm sitting at my desk, in my mind, I just keep going back to what does it mean that God called Abraham to a place he didn't know? What does that mean? I don't know. It's a good thing to meditate about What would that maybe mean for what God wants me to do in my life? I'm just taking a simple verse and I'm just thinking about it throughout the day. Genesis 16, Hagar gets mistreated and it's an abusive environment and she runs away and God appears to her and says, I see you. And she says, she's the first person who names God and she says, have I seen the one who sees me? What does that story have to do with with the way that I understand God and the world and myself. And just throughout my day, I'm, I'm gnawing on that. The psalmist says, the person who learns the value, the beauty, the brilliance of God's word and learns to meditate on it. That person will be happy. What is happiness? This is where you would expect a definition to come. Because here's happiness. Happiness is, look at this paragraph. We'll unpack happiness in four. And instead, the psalmist just gives us a picture. Says the happy person who learns to do this. Verse 3. He is like a tree, planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. To contrast that, verse 4, the wicked are not like this. Those on the wide path are not like a tree. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The psalmist says these two paths, the wide and the narrow, they have very different destinations. At the end of the wide path, if you make that the path that you follow, you will end up like a tumbleweed. The wind blows. Storms come, problems arise, and you just get tossed around. You're like chaff. You're like a tumbleweed. But on this other narrow path, on this path that delights in God and His Word, you'll be like a tree. A tree is strong and sturdy a tumbleweed is weak and fragile. A tree is living and growing and flourishing. A tumbleweed is dead and decaying. A tree is prospering and fruitful. A tumbleweed is starving and barren. A tree is happy and fulfilled. A tumbleweed is frustrated and unsatisfied A tree is known for peace and patience. A tumbleweed is known for bitterness and short temperedness. A tree will have eternal pleasure. A tumbleweed will have eternal regret. The point of Psalm 1 is don't you want to be a tree? Do you want to be a tree? How do you become a tree? Notice that the tree, it says in verse three, is planted beside flowing streams. The reason that the tree is so strong and sturdy, the reason that its leaves don't wither, the reason that it bears fruit, the reason that... As the seasons come and go, you can count on fruitfulness from this tree. You can count on prospering for fruit to be produced. The reason is because of where it's planted. It's planted beside this flowing stream. And because of its proximity to this stream, it's able to get its roots down deep so that there is a life source that you do not see with the tree that allows it to be rich and strong and endure. It's not that the tree never faces storms or dry seasons. It says it bears its fruit in its season. It's that the tree's roots are down deep into something that sustains it. When the storm come, when the seasons change, The trees are planted by the stream. The Bible's vision of happiness is not having a perfect life that's free from pain and sorrow. It's not being fun and famous and healthy and wealthy. The Bible's vision of happiness is as the Apostle Paul would say, It's being pressed on every side yet not crushed. It's being confused but not driven to despair. It's being struck down but not destroyed. It's grieving yet hopeful. It's like a tree. When I think about a tree. I think about my grandmother. The last several years of her life were hard because she had uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, but I loved her, and she loved me, and she was a wonderful woman. And she had a very difficult life. She was born into a very poor family. Her father was abusive to she, her siblings, and her mom. She got married young and had two children. Her oldest son died when he was 19 in a factory accident. He went to work at the night shift. After she made him dinner, he never came home. He was crushed by some machinery that malfunctioned. After grieving through the loss of her son, several years later, her husband retired, and he divorced her after 30 years of marriage. She had to move out of her house that she had decorated and designed right after she had gotten her new cabinets that she had saved up for so long to get had to move cities, pick up her life and start over. But she was a tree. She was a tree. She was always full of love and joy, peace. She was patient and kind and gentle. She was faithful to the Lord. She was a tree. And it's not because her, her life was so, you know, flowery and just there was never any storms that she faced. It's because she had her roots down deep next to a stream. And that is what God wants for you. He wants you to be a tree, not a tumbleweed. One of the greatest challenges to living your life this way, one of the greatest challenges to leaving the wide path and delighting yourself in what God has to say is when you look around the world, so many times it feels like all of the wicked seem to be the trees and the righteous seem to be the tumbleweeds. It seems as if prosperity actually comes from the wide path of ignoring God. And that is what the book of Psalms wrestles with. God You want us to be like trees and you say that becoming a tree is by staying on your path, but it sure seems like the wicked and the mockers are prospering. What is going on? And so why should you follow the narrow path rather than the wide when what seems so obvious so often is the opposite of Psalm 1? And the answer comes from fixing our eyes on the one that the Psalms is ultimately written about. How can we know that the way of the righteous actually leads to life? How can we know that those who delight themselves in the law of the Lord will actually turn out to be trees and not tumbleweeds? By looking to the tree of all trees, whose name is Jesus. He is the only one who never walked down the pathway of sinners. He's the only one who never joined the mockers. Instead, the sinners and mockers turned against him by nailing the tree of all trees to a tree. But the tree of all trees was nailed to a tree to make trees of you and me. Jesus followed the path of the righteous to the point of death. And when they thought the tree had been chopped down, what they did not realize is that he would rise and conquer death. And that what was a stump from the root of Jesse would come out, a shoot that would turn into the tree of all trees. And that is who Jesus is. Jesus proves that if you are faithful to God and his word, it pays off in the end. And it's only because of his faithfulness, his mighty oakness, that sinners like us who are on the path can turn around and delight ourselves in the Lord. In the book of Psalms this summer, we're going to learn. How to fix our eyes on Jesus, how to sing a song in every season. I would love for you to come along with us this summer. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would help us to find our happiness and joy in you. God, would you? lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Would you help us to not walk in the pathway of the wicked? God, would you guard us against cynicism and mockery? God, would you help us to delight ourselves in your word? God, we thank you for your son. If there's anyone here today who does not know him, by your spirit, would you introduce yourself? Would you awaken faith? Would we grow into trees? It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?